0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by The Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com/give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. We're talking about the Pascagoula UFO abduction. Just over 47 years ago, two fishermen in Pascagoula, Mississippi, saw a mysterious object descend from the sky. And they were taken on board by strange creatures that seemed robotic. After the Betty and Barney Hill encounter, it's considered one of the most famous UFO abduction cases in history. We have numerous documents, tape recordings, and witnesses from immediately after the event. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Pascagoula UFO abduction?
1: From the reason perspective, the basic question we need to answer is how much truth there is to the accounts of Hickson and Parker. All of it might be true none of it might be true, or some of it might be true and some not. What's our next episode going to cover? We'll continue to look at the Charlie Hickson, Calvin Parker UFO abduction from the reason perspective. Specifically, we'll be looking at was the original 1973 encounter real? What does the evidence say about that? And we'll be hearing some of that secret tape recording that was made just a couple hours after the event.
0: Listening to episode 128 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Charles Hickson Calvin Parker UFO abduction. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On October 11th, 1973, Mississippi fishermen Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker reported a frightening experience where they were abducted and taken aboard a UFO. That same night, they reported it to the police, who interviewed them at length and even made a secret tape recording of the two men talking alone. Their sincerity impressed everyone, as did the fact that the younger fisherman, Calvin Parker, was nearly hysterical and he later had a nervous breakdown that required hospitalization. UFO experts like Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Dr. James Harder, we were convinced the two men had a genuine experience of some kind. But as always, skeptics are not convinced. So what does the evidence say? Were Hickson and Parker hoaxing? Were they innocently deceived about the experience? Or could they have really been abducted by aliens? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, let's continue looking at the reason perspective let's look at Hickson and Parker's original 1973 encounter. What does the evidence say about it?
1: I want to begin by looking at the arguments that have been proposed against it by UFO critics such as Philip Class and Joe Nickell. In his 1989 book, UFO Abductions, A Dangerous Game, Class says that he believes the entire encounter was a hoax, and he makes several arguments. He says that although he announced his hoax conclusion in 1974, Charlie and Calvin did not write him or call him to challenge his conclusion. He says that the lie detector Charlie passed was conducted by an inexperienced polygrapher and he declined to take subsequent polygraphs. He implies that Calvin got out of taking the polygraph by faking a nervous breakdown. He says that Charlie had been previously fired from a job for improperly obtaining money from persons who worked under him. And I found references to him elsewhere alleging that the details of Charlie's story later changed.
0: All right, let's look at the arguments. What about the claim that Hickson and Parker didn't write or call him to dispute his charge that they had conducted a hoax?
1: I hate to criticize other people, but to put it politely, class was an arrogant, egocentric, and unscrupulous individual. Uh, We don't have time in this episode for me to document those claims, but they are well-founded and have been documented by others. For now, just consider what kind of an egomaniac you'd have to be to say, well, after I published a criticism, they never wrote or called me to dispute it, so that's evidence my criticism is true. I mean come on, man. I mean, as an apologist, I get criticized all the time. And I have better things to do than waste my time writing and calling people of ill will to privately dispute what they've said. I often don't even respond to people who criticize things I've said when they post their criticism in my own com boxes. I just let them have their say and move on. Also, class may be being deceptive when he says they didn't write or call him because they definitely disputed with him. In his most recent book, Calvin reports on what happened when he accompanied Charlie to the set of a TV show where Charlie was going to debate class, something that obviously involved contradicting his hoax theory. So Charlie was all set to contradict it. And there were fireworks at the event and afterwards. Calvin reports
0: I could tell right away that there was friction between Philip Class and Charles Hickson. Class was refusing to be on the same set on the TV show with Charlie for some reason. At the time, I, I can't remember the date, I couldn't figure out what the problem was. All I knew was that there was friction between Class and Charlie. To cut a long story short, neither of them ended up doing the TV show. However, there was a news guy at the TV studio that wanted to take us all out for something to eat. So everyone agreed and we headed off for some food. As we arrived at the restaurant, I could now see that class and charlie were simply not getting along. Class told charlie that he was a scientist and only dealt in facts. Charlie suggested that we should not talk about the encounter any more. So class and charlie didn't say another word to each other. In the restaurant, I was seated across the table from class and Charlie was sat at the other end of the table.
1: When Class asserted his hoax claim in the restaurant, Calvin objected.
0: I now informed Class that he had never asked me anything about what had happened to us. How come he could accuse me of hoaxing this event without ever having contacted me or asked me any questions? If he was a scientist, surely he should have done this. It was at this point that I did become very irritated by this man. I did not like to be called a liar, and he didn't like it when I called him a fake scientist. At this point, I lost my temper somewhat with Philip Class and told him in no uncertain words what I thought of him. Needless to say, we were asked to leave the restaurant before our food arrived. The ride home was very quiet, and I was very hungry. This was my first and last meeting with Philip Class.
1: So, according to Calvin, they did dispute his hoax theory to his face— And the tensions between them were so strong that not only did he and Charlie not end up debating on the TV show, but they got kicked out of a restaurant before they got to eat. So they did dispute Class's hoax claim very forcefully. And even if they hadn't, the claim that they didn't write him or call him would have basically zero evidence his weight. You just don't have to answer all of your critics. And if you don't, it doesn't show
0: them to be right. What about Class's criticism of the polygraph that Charlie took? It's
1: apparently true that the initial polygrapher was inexperienced. It's also true on later occasions that Charlie didn't always agree to be re polygraphed. However, both he and Calvin did take and pass polygraphs. Also, sitting for a polygraph is annoying and stressful, and I can't really blame them to not repeatedly redo polygraphs. I mean, just how many of these do I need to take and pass would be my response. Now, as we'll learn in an episode coming up really soon, I don't place much stock in polygraphs. Like hypnosis, it's a highly unreliable technique. But as we heard in uh, last episode, in a clip from Sheriff Diamond, Both of the men were willing to take polygraphs in the immediate wake of the 1973 event. That says something about their confidence levels that they could pass such tests. Back, you know, in the 70s, these tests were even more highly valued than they are today.
0: What about the claim that Calvin faked his nervous breakdown to avoid taking a polygraph?
1: This is contradicted by several notable facts. First, Calvin was highly agitated after the initial encounter, as multiple people indicated, including Charlie, Sheriff Diamond, and other people who saw him immediately after the event. That was evident in the October 12th recording taken the day after the event of the interview with Sheriff Diamond, which we heard last episode. He mentioned that Calvin was still so distraught the morning after he couldn't even talk to his mom on the phone. Second, Calvin was hospitalized to deal with his nervous breakdown, and his family had to pay for that. They were not rich people, which is why Calvin was doing a menial job that involved slinging a sledgehammer all day in a shipyard. And such people don't part with a precious commodity like money for frivolous reasons. The fact they were willing to pay for this hospitalization suggests the nervous breakdown was real. Third, The nervous breakdown happened immediately before his wedding to his high school sweetheart, and faking a nervous breakdown with a resulting hospitalization at that moment would involve a huge risk of derailing the wedding. Personally, I would much rather go to my fiancé and say, Sorry, honey, but I was so nervous during the polygraph test that I blew it, rather than go to her and say, Sorry, honey, but I just had a nervous breakdown and had to be hospitalized as a result. The latter has far more ominous implications for a coming nuptial union than the former, so it's more evidence that the nervous breakdown was real. Fourth, Calvin was eager to take a polygraph very early on. As we heard in the October 12th interview with Sheriff Diamond, Calvin was willing to take a polygraph that night the night of October 11th, right after the encounter, but he was so wound up that it was deemed best not to do it right then. And fifth, Calvin did eventually take and pass a lie detector test. So in light of all that, I I can't credit this allegation.
0: What about Class's claim that Charlie had been fired from a previous job for improperly obtaining money from those who worked under him? In his 1989 book, Class covers
1: this extremely briefly and does not go into detail. So I did additional research, and apparently the charge was that a year before working at the Walker Shipyard, Charlie worked at another place where he ostensibly borrowed money from his juniors with the promise to repay them by getting them promotions. Charlie flat out denies this account. According to him, he wasn't fired he resigned from his position because of political jockeying on the job between him and other supervisors he said that the other supervisors resented him because he was able to get his men promoted faster and he was tired of dealing with the friction so he resigned the charge against him thus may have been something that jealous peers made up or simply suspected about him or it may have been accurate but class doesn't have proof that this scenario is correct. And so we have two competing scenarios with no way to conclusively decide between them. However, I'd make two points. First, the fact Charlie was able to swiftly get a job at the Walker shipyard in a supervisory position is more consistent with the idea that he resigned his previous job than that he was known to have been fired for cutting illicit deals with his underlings. I mean, I wouldn't hire a supervisor who had been fired for doing that. Second, even if he was guilty of this charge, it wouldn't be proof that he was a UFO hoaxer, especially given the stigma in 1973 that attached to people who even reported seeing UFOs, much less being abducted by them. Since the only popularly known UFO abduction was the Betty and Barney Hill encounter, at the time, if you publicly claimed to be taken aboard a UFO, Against your will, you were regarded as even more of a whack job than you would be today. Further, it wouldn't explain why Calvin would have gone along with the hoax since he didn't want it discussed with the press and his trauma after the event was apparent to all. So I don't find this allegation plausible. It's both unproved and would be inconclusive even if proved.
0: Even though we haven't mentioned it explicitly thus far, What about the idea that Charlie and Calvin might have hoaxed the event out of a desire for attention or money? Let's deal with attention first. This theory could receive some support
1: for Charlie, since he was willing to talk about the event in interviews and make public appearances like speeches at UFO conventions. However, it's contradicted by Calvin's extreme reluctance to speak about the event from 1973 to 2018, a period of 45 years. So seeking attention wouldn't have been Calvin's motive.
0: What about the idea that they wanted to make money? It's very easy
1: for people to make this charge, especially when people publish books after an event like this. But most people don't have an understanding of how book publishing works or how little profit actually ends up coming back to the authors. Unless you're on the New York Times bestseller list, you're not likely to make very much. Writing a book is a lot of work, and 90% of the cost of the book goes to paying the printers, the editors, and the publishing houses. An author is lucky to make 10 cents on the dollar for the cost of a single book. And that's diluted even further if he has co-authors, as was the case with Charlie's book, and to some extent, and Calvin's also. So they could expect their shares to maybe be cut by half. So unless they thought they had books that would sell literally millions of copies, they didn't stand to make much. And they didn't have books that would sell millions of copies. UFO books are a niche market that doesn't sell anything like that number of copies. Also, while Charlie did write a book in 1983, Calvin didn't do so until 2018, which is a strong signal that Calvin sincerely wanted to stay out of the limelight and wasn't trying to make money.
0: What about the idea that Charlie made money in the interim?
1: Nobody gets rich off the UFO speaking circuit. It's incredibly small and people are lucky to cover their expenses. In his 1983 book, his co-author writes... Hasn't Hickson made a lot of money on this incident from his public appearances, interviews, etc.?
0: No, he has not. Charlie has only appeared on national TV talk shows twice, and these customarily pay little more than one's expenses. The talks Charlie has given to churches, schools, and other gatherings, both public and private, have sometimes earned him a speaker's fee of a few hundred dollars. Some of these organizations have paid the expenses only. Others have paid nothing to hear him speak. The total number of paid appearances that Charlie has made over the past nine years is under 40, including those where the pay consisted solely of his travel and lodging expenses. For all of the interviews, whether written, filmed, or recorded, Charlie has received practically nothing. I believe one Canadian film company gave him a few hundred dollars for a filmed interview, which they later used in a commercial feature-length movie about UFOs. Considering the time lost at work soon after the abduction, and the time lost subsequently because Charlie took time off from work to travel to a speaking engagement, he's probably come out a financial loser.
1: And that's quite plausible, speaking as someone who does similarly low-paying discussions. Charlie may well have lost more money than he gained from his experience, because even if you get a little bit of a stipend for a speaking event, you've got to take time off from work to get there.
0: What about the claim that Charlie changed the details of his account of the original 1973 encounter?
1: I've seen several allegations made, but they all concern very minor differences. For example, Philip Klass apparently once criticized Charlie for saying that under their noses the robot-like entities had a slit where their mouths would be, but on other occasions he said they had a hole there. Well, yeah, a slit is a kind of a hole. So what's the big deal? Similarly, I've seen the objection that at times he said that the vehicle was maybe eight feet tall. On other occasions, he said it was maybe eight to 10 feet tall or even 12 feet tall. But those are just different estimates of an object whose exact size he doesn't claim to know. And it's not like he had a a measuring tape or a ruler he could use to measure this thing. And they're all in the same range, 10 feet plus or minus two feet. Also, skeptic Joe Nickel has noted that Charlie didn't always mention the eye injury that he had for a few days after being exposed to the extremely bright light on the craft. You know, He said that for a few days, it was like he had a welding flash burn-in thing in his eyes. But you don't have to mention every detail every time. That's not what witnesses do. And so I don't find any of these variations in detail as being fundamental alterations of Charlie's story of the 1973 encounter.
0: What about Calvin's account? Here, there was a
1: change that was significant. Initially, both Charlie and Calvin said that Calvin passed out once the robotic entities grabbed him and that he didn't have any memory of what happened until after he and Charlie were out of the ship. Later, they indicated that this wasn't true, that Calvin did have a memory of being taken aboard the ship, but he was so traumatized by the whole experience, he didn't want to deal with the police and the press about what happened to him, so they would minimize what happened to him in their story. It was thus a defensive lie to protect the fragile and emotionally overwrought Calvin this is consistent with the fact that calvin was very reluctant to speak to the press and it's consistent with everyone's perception that calvin was by far the more shaken up of the two something that was being reported the day after the event took place as we heard in the interview with sheriff fred diamond
2: this is how camillo speaking to you from the jackson county sheriff's department here in downtown pascagoula Well, this morning, we had uh, an interrogation or interview with two of the gentlemen that reportedly sighted and were taken aboard a UFO late last night in the Goche area. And we have with us Sheriff Fred Diamond. This is what we understand, Sheriff Diamond, that the two gentlemen, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, are being checked out for radiation at this time. I understand, Sheriff uh, Diamond, that the... Youngest man, 18 years old, I believe, uh, Calvin Parker, is still in quite a bit of state of shock. That's very, very much true. He's still very, very upset. Their attorney has advised that there will be no interviewing because the men, uh, according to the attorney, are still in a state of shock, especially the young boy. Everybody that we have talked to that have uh, talked to the men tend to believe their story. How about you? Yes, sir. I definitely Mm -hmm. believe their story. Did we have a lie detector test? Uh, I think it was the young one, the 18-year-old man, uh, said he was willing to take the test even last night. That's very true, very true, and uh, he, he got very emotional up here this morning. I noticed, uh, especially, we keep talking about the 18-year-old, and he is really upset by the situation. That's true. I got a call from his mother about uh, four to five minutes ago, wanting to talk to him, and he's not even in a condition to talk to his mother this time. They're going they go to the hospital, and I think they will give him something to quieten him down.
1: So Sheriff Diamond thought the men, and particularly Calvin, would need a tranquilizer to help them settle down after the manifest trauma they experienced from the event. Normally, I would look upon a dramatic change in a person's story, like the change from I don't remember being taken aboard the craft to I do remember being taken aboard the craft, as a major sign that the story is being modified and thus may be false. However, in this case, I can understand up to a point why they might say this to protect Calvin and try to keep him out of it if we have confirmatory evidence that the overall experience happened.
0: Do we have confirmatory evidence of the overall 1973 experience? Do we have a reason to think that the two didn't simply hoax it?
1: There's evidence we should consider in several categories. First, here's a very minor point. In his books, Calvin Parker reports that the night of the encounter, there was a full moon. And that's true. I checked when the October 1973 full moon was from Pascagoula, Mississippi, and it was at 10.10 p.m. on the night of October 11th, the night the encounter occurred. That's at least somewhat significant, since the moon would only be considered full for a few days a month, and half the time that would occur during the daytime. Rather than at night. So the chance of randomly guessing a nighttime full moon is less than you'd think. Still, though, it's a very minor point, but it does speak in favor of the truthfulness of the account rather than a pure hoax. Secondly, and more significantly, there's the way Calvin had his first book edited. He refused to write a book for many years, and it took the coaxing of his wife to get him to agree. He talks about how he finally agreed to do one after attending the funeral of a friend. And at that funeral or visitation or wake, people approached him to ask about the 1973 encounter. He said, And I had
3: signed the register, and there was people coming from everywhere wanting to talk to me, and we felt like that was really disrespectful to talk about this at this guy's funeral. He was a neighbor of ours. So after the funeral, we was on our way home. My wife said, maybe we should write a book. I thought, no. This fat boy ain't going to write a book because, you know, I don't have the education to. And I had dodged this all these years. From 1973 on, I never talked about this to family, to friends, to no one. So it come after the wake. I got home, and I didn't know more than get home. Then Philip had searched me down, been hunting me for years, wanting to interview me on another subject because he didn't think I would write a book. Yeah. So we talked about it, and he asked me if I would consider it. And, of course, I was going to blow him off. I said, of course I'll consider it. <laughs> I'll let me find a ghostwriter or something. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I was blowing him off, and I was blowing my <laughs> wife off. I didn't really want to do a book. So we called back one day, and he said, why didn't you want to write a book? I said, because everybody changes stuff, you know. You give a press release, time you get the press release out there, it's 100 times more than what yeah. it was and all. And I said, I will write a book. I do not want the book edited in no way. Yeah. And believe it or not, he agreed. Being a publisher, and a good publisher he is, he did agree not to edit the book. And in ways, that was a mistake for me because I could have let him edit the spelling and all exactly. of it. Exactly. But I didn't. But people love this like
1: it is. They say it's like sitting in the living room, listening to you tell the story. So Calvin didn't regard himself as having the education to write a book, but his wife and publisher Philip Mantle asked him to do it. When he did agree, he insisted on a very special requirement that his editor not touch his words. And he recognizes that the book could have benefited from editing. And I agree with that. I got the book, and it does read very much like informal speech with redundancies and other issues that professional editing would have cleaned up. Now, think about this. If Calvin were a hoaxer, someone who was not concerned about the truth and was concerned about things like money or attention, then he would be more likely to welcome editing so that he'd look better Attract more admiration and sell more books. The fact he rejected professional editing is more consistent with the idea that he really cares about the truth and wanted to make sure that his story was not augmented or tampered with, even if that meant he was going to be revealed as an uneducated man. So Calvin's no editing demand speaks to his concern for truth and against the idea of a hoax. Third, we have independent witnesses. For a start, there's the fact that Charlie also testified to the reality of the 1973 event, though you could dismiss that on the grounds of Charlie being in on the hoax. However, there are a bunch of other witnesses. In the years since 1973, multiple witnesses have come forward and said they saw the same event, or at least the same craft. Some have come forward very recently, since the publication of Calvin's 2018 book, with some saying that they didn't come forward earlier because of the stigma against saying you'd seen a UFO in 1973. While this stigma is real, I still value the testimony of witnesses who show up 47 years later less than I value the testimony of those who speak up immediately. But as we heard in the clip from Sheriff Diamond from October 12th, 1973, the morning after the encounter, there were multiple people who said they saw the UFO and who came forward immediately.
2: Uh, this, this same object that uh, was supposed to have picked these two men up was spotted about uh, four to five minutes earlier uh, up near the Van Cleve area. It was also spotted by two or three people in Pastagoula. In other words, Sheriff Diamond, there have been quite a few reports uh, of this UFO uh, in our area and approximately at the same time that uh, these two men have stated that they were taken aboard.
1: In fact, since the story was only just then hitting the press, some of them reported this apparently before they would have been able to know about the abduction event from the press. That speaks in favor of the truthfulness of the account rather than a hoax. Fourth, there's the fact that three weeks after the event, Calvin had a panic attack and had to be hospitalized. That's a sign of truthfulness because his family was far from rich and they had to pay for the hospitalization. There was even greater social stigma then than there is now to being hospitalized after a mental break. And he was engaged to be married and having a break like that right before the marriage is a great way to not get married. Taking these kinds of risks is not what you would expect from a person who is hoaxing. Fifth, and most significantly, we have a voice recording of the two men that was made immediately after the 1973 encounter when the two were not supposed to be aware that they were being monitored. This is like two, three hours after the event. Sheriff Diamond indicated that part of what convinced the police was that the two men, that the two men were telling the truth? Uh, was the fact that their stories were the same, even though they interviewed them separately and then put them together and monitored their conversation? Their
2: stories were the same. Then interviewed them separately, and then we put them together. We
1: monitored their conversation. What Sheriff Diamond is referring to is this: when Charlie Hickson was being interviewed by the police, they had a tape recorder running in the room, a hidden tape recorder and they were then interviewing Calvin in a different room. Afterwards, they brought Calvin into the same room as Charlie, and they left the tape recorder running, and then left the two men alone to see what they'd say.
0: What did they expect to hear?
1: If the two men were hoaxers, they'd expect them to hear them saying something that would indicate that they knew their story was a fake. For example, How's it going, Calvin? Do you think they're buying our story? Or isn't this great, Charlie? We're completely pulling the wool over their eyes. What do we actually hear on the tape? Well, before we get to the part where Charlie and Calvin are left alone together, let's look at the part that records Charlie's interview. It contains all of the basic elements of his story, what he and Calvin had been doing before the encounter, the nature of the craft, the description of the creatures, how he and Calvin were independently taken on board how he was examined by an electronic device separately from Calvin and then left alone for a while, how they were deposited back outside of the craft, which then left really quickly, and what they did afterwards. It has all the core elements of his account, all recorded within two, three hours of when it occurred. And this is supposed to be without Charlie knowing he's being recorded.
0: We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Elizabeth T., Carrie B., Jason E., James I., and Adam S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com and by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. What happened after they interviewed Charlie on tape? They brought Calvin into the room, and then the police left with the excuse of going to get
1: coffee. They left them alone for about five minutes to see if they would say anything indicating that they weren't sincere. Now, we have the whole tape today, and we'll have a link to it so you can listen to it yourself. But the audio quality is bad, and it can be difficult to make out the conversation, so rather than subject you to 5 minutes of bad audio we'll just play you a small part so that you can hear the emotion in the men's voices first though dom and i will revoice the whole conversation so that you can hear everything that was said dom will be playing the part of charlie and i'll be playing the part of calvin one note in part you know presumably because of the stress they were under they used a few cuss words and Dom and I will be using substitutes for anything worse than damn. Don't let your imagination go crazy about what they actually said, though. This was 1970s cussing, which means it wasn't that intense by modern standards. I mean, neither one of them uses the F word, for example. Uh, Having said that, here's their conversation from the night of October 11th, 1973, less than three hours after the encounter.
0: We need to get over there and let me tell Blanche she... I'm telling you, man, that's something that'll scare you damn near to death, you know? Expletive deleted. You hear about something like that, but you can't believe it. Yeah, you hear about it. I know, Kelvin. I know, but... You reckon it's something the United States could have up there? No, no, it just couldn't be. I I don't know. Not what we seen, though. Not what we've seen. It's something in the Air Force and all. I know it's up there, too, see? And this ain't gonna be the only time. It's gonna happen again. And until they— This evening, I like to have a heart attack tonight. I ain't blanking you. I know. I came damn near to dying. I know. It scared me to death, too, son. i just damn near crying right now. I can't— I know. It's something you just can't get over in a lifetime. See? expletive deleted. What's so damn bad about it? Won't nobody believe it. I thought I'd been through enough of hell on on this earth, and now I had to go through something like this. See? But they could have, you know, I guess they—well, they could have done anything to us. They didn't hurt me. You reckon why they just picked us up? I don't know. I don't know. I'm telling you, man, I can't take much more of that. I got to get home, get to bed or get some nerve pills or something, see a doctor or something. I
1: can't stand it. I'm about to go all to pieces.
0: I tell you, when we get through, I'll get you something to settle you down so you can get some damn sleep. I can't sleep like it is yet. I'm just damn near crazy. Well, Calvin, when they brought you out of that damn thing and when they brought me out, well, I like to never in hell, you know, expletive deleted i like to never in hell get you straightened out, man. My damn arms, I remember, my arms, they just froze, just like that. I couldn't move, just
1: like I stepped on a damn rattlesnake.
0: They didn't, uh, they didn't do that way, though. They, oh boy, Lord, have mercy. I passed out, I passed out, that's the first time in my life I ever
1: passed out, Calvin says something inaudible,
0: and it is. I've never seen nothing like that before in my life. It's something, you can't make people believe in that, though. I don't give a blank whether they believe it or not, because I know. They'd better wake up and start believing. You're damn right. They'd better wake up and start believing. You're damn right. They'd better wake up and start believing. Because I've seen them. I can't figure out the damn thing. Did
1: you see how that door come right open in front of us all of a sudden?
0: Yeah, I don't know how it opened, son. I don't. I didn't see no swing or... I don't know how it opened. I don't know how it opened. I didn't see it open. All I heard was this here zip. Have you ever seen something? Then
1: looked around and damn blue lights. Them sons of blanks was just just like they come out.
0: I know, you can't believe it, and you can't make people believe it. I paralyzed right there, I couldn't move. They're gonna believe it one of these days, they're gonna believe it one of these days. It might be too late. I knew all along there was, there was people from other worlds up there. I knew all along. I never thought it would happen to me. You know I don't drink. I know, I know that. We're gonna be accused of being a damn dopehead and everything else, cause... I know I ain't. Any very little I drink, and I drank some a while ago when I got out of the damn thing to settle my nerves. Calvin says something inaudible. And I'll probably take me a couple of drinks when I get to the house and make me sleep. I'll tell you something. If I thought it would help my nerves, I'd go drink something right now. When I get to the house, I'm going to get me another drink and make me sleep because I I can't. I I can't. It's something I won't never forget it. Look, what are we waiting for on? I got to go tell Blanche. Why did they say we had to wait? Uh... I got to get to the house. I'm
1: done sitting here getting so damn sick right now. I ain't blanking you. I got to go to the house. Wait a minute. Let me go talk to him. So instead of saying things like, do you think they believed us or it's going well, we're putting one over on them. Charlie and Calvin were saying things like, do you think the United States has anything like that up there? and I like to have a heart attack tonight. I came damn near to die, and I'm damn near crying right now. They could have done anything to us. I need to get to a doctor and pick up some nerve pills, all kinds of things like that. And just so you can hear some of this in their own voices, we'll now play a part of the actual clip for you, a short part. Because it's hard to hear, though, Here's the part of the conversation that you should listen for, and Dom and I will read it more slowly this time. Calvin starts by saying, You reckon they just picked us up?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I'm telling you, man. I can't take much more of that. I got to get home, get to bed, or get some nerve pills or something, see a
1: doctor or something. I can't stand it. I'm about to go all to pieces.
0: I tell you, when we get through, I'll get you something to settle you down so you can get some damn sleep.
1: I can't sleep yet like it is. I'm just damn near crazy.
0: Well, Calvin, when they brought you out of that damn thing and when they brought me out, well, I like to never in hell, you know, expletive deleted. I like to never in hell get you straightened out, man.
1: My damn arms, I remember my arms, they just froze just like that and I couldn't move just like I stepped on a damn rattlesnake.
0: They didn't, uh, they didn't do that way though. They, oh boy, Lord have mercy. I passed out.
1: I passed out. That's the first time in my life I ever passed out. Calvin says something inaudible, and it is. Now, here's the recording.
0: Right now, I just
2: I'm the bag, just to or some, some doctors, state I'll take you by They get to us. We go by the I'll get you some I can't I sleep right like it. I don't know if anybody's being here crazy. But when he brought you under that damn thing, and when he brought me out, well, I like to never in the hell, you know. God damn, I like to never in the hell got you straightened out, man. But, uh, when they were I remember my heart, they just froze that just like it. I couldn't move it just like the stuff. They were rattlesnake. They didn't, uh, they didn't do anything. Well, you know, they,
1: so there are a number of interesting things here. The men, and especially Calvin, sound sincere in their emotions and very disturbed by the experience. This, as well as the fact that they didn't break their story even in private, helped convince the police and UFO experts like Doctors Heineck and Harder that they were telling the truth. Even UFO skeptic Joe Nickel agrees that they didn't sound like hoaxers on the tape. So he proposed a non-hoax theory, a skeptical non-hoax theory that we'll talk about in a bit. However, first, I'd like to call your attention to something that Calvin said at the end of the segment we played. Specifically, he said, I passed out. I passed out. That's the first time I ever passed out in my life. Here it is again.
0: What's significant about
1: that? According to Calvin today, this was a lie. Calvin did not pass out and had continuous memories of what happened after he was taken aboard the craft. But the two men decided to say that he passed out in order to shield Calvin from having to deal with extra attention, which was something he didn't want, whether it was from the police or the press. There are two things that. Puzzle me about this claim. First, why lie about just part of the experience? Would it really shield Calvin that much? He's already been brought in to speak with the police, so they knew he was involved, and he'd already admitted to witnessing the beginning and the end of the experience before and after they were taken aboard the craft. So would hiding his knowledge of the middle part of the experience really shield him that much? I suppose it would shield him a little since, you know, there would be less of the experience for him to be asked about either by the police or the press, but it still seems odd to me to hide just the middle part. I wondered if it was possible that Calvin did pass out briefly and then revived, allowing him to have memories of what happened just afterwards that he just Didn't want to share. I also wondered if it was possible that he did pass out and the apparent memories only came to him later, either by conscious recall, dreams, or hypnosis. So I contacted Calvin's publisher and co author, Philip Mantle, over in England, and I asked about this. In particular, I asked if he always remembered the female figure or if she was something that first came up under hypnosis. Mr. Mantle wrote
0: back and said, Shortly after the incident happened in 1973, Charlie and Calvin decided to tell the authorities. They were not totally forthcoming. In order to protect his young companion, they said that Calvin had passed out and therefore could not remember the abduction on board the UFO. Calvin always remembered the female and the rest of the abduction, but continued with the story that he did not in order to try and keep the media away from him. Charlie mostly dealt with the media, and Calvin ended up in hospital just a few weeks later. So in answer to your question, yes, Calvin always remembered the full details of the 1973 encounter, including the female being. One of the main reasons for writing the books was to tell his story in full for the first time. So he indicated that Calvin has said that
1: he was conscious the whole time and the claim that he passed out was not true.
0: What was the second thing that puzzled you about Calvin's statement on the secret tape? The secret tape
1: is taken as evidence of the men's honesty, since they presumably would not stick to a story they had crafted if they believed they were speaking privately and no one was listening. But if Calvin never passed out, then the two men were sticking to a story they had crafted to some degree on the secret tape. Even if everything else in the story was true, they were still sticking with an untruth by repeating the bit about Calvin passing out. Yet, why would they do that if they believed they were speaking in private? So, I wrote back to Mr. Mantle and said, One further question, if I may. At one point on the secret tape, Calvin says, I passed out, I passed out, that's the first time I ever passed out in my life. It is puzzling why he would say this to Charlie if they believed they were speaking in private and both knew that he didn't pass out. I can think of several possible explanations, but could you or Calvin shed any light on why he said this during their private conversation? Mr. Mantle very graciously indicated that he would ask Calvin, and when he wrote back, he said,
0: I spoke with Calvin the other night on Skype, and I asked him to clarify your question for me. Calvin and Charlie discussed what to tell people right after the incident. Calvin, of course, did not want to tell anyone anything. However, him and Charlie agreed that in order to protect Calvin, who was very distressed, they decided to inform everyone that Calvin had passed out and could not remember anything on board the UFO. Calvin could, of course, remember everything and Charlie knew this.
1: But it still puzzled me why Calvin would say this in front of Charlie when they were left alone, unless the men knew, or at least suspected, that their conversation was being monitored. So I asked Mr. Mantle about that, and he replied,
0: To the best of my knowledge, they had no idea they were being recorded. Calvin, by that point, was very distressed. Make of it what you will. There are a whole bunch of assumptions that could be made, I'm sure, but in the two years that I've known Calvin, I have found him to be an honest and honorable man. And from
1: reading his books and watching multiple interviews with him, Calvin certainly comes across as a very down-to-earth, sincere man. But I think this does diminish the evidential value of the secret tape. We don't have any evidence that the two men found the tape recorder while they were left alone. We ought to hear a noise like a drawer being opened if that had happened, but we don't hear that. But Charlie and Calvin must have at least suspected that their conversation was being monitored either by tape, or by someone listening in the hall, or in another room, and that's what prompted Calvin to repeat the idea that he had passed out, to bolster at least that aspect of his story. The question then would be, were there other things they said on the tape that weren't true, but that they repeated to each other to bolster their story in case they were being overheard?
0: Could they have been lying about the whole thing? I can't rule it out. However, we do have some
1: evidence pointing in the other direction. They did pass polygraph examinations and Calvin did so after he admitted to being awake the whole time. I still don't think very much of the evidential value of polygraphs, but that's something. The men impressed everyone as very sincere right after the event and Calvin in particular impressed everyone as being sincerely freaked out. They also sound sincerely shook up Uh, and trying to come to grips with what happened to them on the secret tape. Calvin's nervous breakdown three weeks later that required hospitalization, that's not something you tend to fake, both because of the expense and because it was right before his wedding. We have other witnesses of the craft from the night of the reported encounter. Calvin manifestly wanted to avoid attention to a substantial degree because he largely stayed out of the limelight for the next 44 years. And when he did agree to write a book on the subject, he insisted that it not be edited, despite the fact that he believed he was not educated enough to write a book. So while I think that the evidential value of the secret tape is not as great as it could be, because they show an awareness that they might be being overheard, there is additional evidence that supports aspects of their story.
0: You said UFO skeptic Joe Nickel developed a non-hoax theory to account for the experience. What does he think?
1: Charlie and Calvin both admitted to drinking a little bit of alcohol after the event to settle their nerves. And Nickel speculates that they may have been drinking earlier, causing them to doze off. Now, actually, the drinking isn't essential to his theory, but the dozing off is. They both need to fall asleep. He thinks that Charlie then woke up, but suffered from sleep paralysis. One of the characteristics of sleep paralysis, as the name indicates, is the inability to move, which often causes anxiety in the people who experience it. They also commonly sense the presence of one or more beings who are perceived as threats. And I can testify to that because in the past I've had a few cases of sleep paralysis, though it hasn't occurred in years when i did have them i you know would wake up i couldn't move and i felt anxiety about not being able to move and i thought there might be someone in my house who shouldn't be i thought it was a human in my house but others have thought it might be a ghost or an alien and so sleep paralysis is commonly proposed as an explanation for nighttime alien abduction encounters in any event Nichols' proposal is that Charlie dozed off, woke up with sleep paralysis, and the part of his brain responsible for dreaming created the alien abduction scenario, including his own paralysis, which was incorporated into the dream.
0: That could explain Charlie's belief that he'd been abducted, but what about Calvin? It would be really unlikely to have two people both doze off, have sleep paralysis, and dream the same abduction scenario. It
1: would, so Nickel proposes something different for Calvin. Unfortunately, he relies on the initial claim that Calvin passed out. He speculates that after passing out, Calvin woke up and Charlie told him that the two of them had been abducted and then managed to convince him of that. Calvin's apparent memories of the event were thus produced by what Charlie told him plus his own imagination.
0: What do you make of Nichols' theory? Like anything else, it's possible. I
1: don't find it particularly likely. In the first place, he adjusts elements of their story to fit his theory, like proposing that they'd been drinking all along in order to explain why they passed out together, though neither of the men seemed drunk when the police interviewed them. Second, even if the two guys did pass out or just fall asleep while fishing, and one of them had a sleep paralysis experience how easy would it be for him to convince the other that they had both been abducted by a UFO? I mean, imagine yourself in that situation. If you and your fishing buddy fell asleep and suddenly he's telling you that you were both abducted by a UFO, how easy would it be to convince you and get you to manufacture memories of the beginning and end of the experience? Third, According to what Calvin later claimed, he never passed out, in which case he was conscious the whole time and thus would not have had the kind of missing time that Charlie's dream scenario would need to be convincing to him. I mean, imagine that just your fishing buddy falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he tries to tell you that you were both just abducted by alien robots even though you've been awake the whole time and have no missing time, which would be more likely that you'd say, wow, you're right, or dude, you were just dreaming. So I don't think that Nichols' non-hoax theory is particularly promising.
0: Is there any other evidence that could help settle the question?
1: Potentially. After Calvin released his first book in 2018, Dr. Hynek's Center for UFO Studies, or CUFO's, did some digging in their files, and they found a document from right after the event. It describes a physical examination made of the two men by Dr. Harder, and he sent a copy to Dr. Hynek, which is why it was in KUFOS's files you'll recall that Charlie reported being injected by a tranquilizing and paralyzing agent in his left arm. Calvin also thought he had been injected in the arm, but in the secret tape, he compares his sudden paralysis to stepping on a rattlesnake, an image that involves his feet. Here's what Dr. Harder's document said.
0: Approximately 72 hours after Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker had been abducted into a strange glowing object by humanoid-type beings, certain markings were found on their bodies of which both men could not account for their presence when questioned about them. At the time of questioning, these two men both still showed signs of being in a mild state of shock. Both men's pupils showed signs of being dilated, and the reactions to light by the pupils were very slow in relation to what they should have been, suggesting that their eyes had been affected by the artificial intense lighting inside the craft. Their reaction time to certain stimuli response activities was also very slow. Three puncture-type marks were noted on Charles Hickson's left arm as indicated in the photos that were taken in his home that night by me in the presence of his wife and son-in-law and the son-in-law's wife, and Calvin Parker. A close examination revealed that the epidermis had been penetrated as if by a needle-like device in several different areas of the left arm At the same time, certain sections of the epidermis had been removed in a circular fashion, although very small sections which could have only been observed by close inspection. The rest of Charles Hickson's body was also inspected. No other marks or rashes were noted. Calvin Parker's body was also carefully inspected. Puncture-type marks of the same fashion were noted on the inside of his left foot, as indicated in the photos. No other marks or rashes were noted on the rest of his body, except for naturally occurring blemishes and pimples. So
1: there apparently was some unusual physical evidence found on their bodies in the form of puncture marks on Charlie's left arm and Calvin's left foot.
0: So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Pascagoula UFO abduction mystery? I'm cooler
1: towards the things that the men reported under hypnosis and in later years, but the original 1973 encounter is one of the better documented UFO abduction cases. The secret tape does not have the kind of evidential value it otherwise could, since Charlie and Calvin apparently at least suspected that their conversation was being monitored. It could be that they were hoaxing, but there are notable pieces of evidence pointing in the other direction. These include the way the two men struck everyone at the time and especially Calvin's panic about the event, the other people in the area who witnessed the UFO the same night, Calvin's later nervous breakdown and hospitalization, the marks that Dr. Harder found on their bodies shortly after the event, Calvin's manifest desire to avoid attention for decades, and the no editing policy he insisted on for the book when it was finally published.
0: So, Jimmy, what for the resources can we offer to the listener on this topic? We'll have
1: a link to Calvin Parker's book, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, and the follow-up book, Pascagoula, The Story Continues. Also, Charles Hickson's book, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, the Pascagoula documentary that Calvin recently participated in, interviews from both 1983 and 2002 with Charles Hickson, webpage on the Pascagoula abduction and the history of wildlife tracking and mechanical telepathy and Joe Nichols' Skeptical View, also a podcast that Calvin Parker recently did, and the Pascagoula Full Moon Calculator, so you can verify my calculations of when the full moon was.
0: All right. So uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback. This time we're hearing feedback on our episode on Father Rodriguez, the apostle of the last time. And the first feedback comes from Sean, who sent this email. I just listened with fascination to your latest episode about Father Michel Rodrigue, and with horror in hearing a Roman Catholic priest who is clearly, in my opinion, a seriously disturbed fantasist. Your comment about the Russians letting loose a biological weapon in a restaurant immediately struck a chord with me, as that is exactly what happened in my hometown of Salisbury in 1998 when Russian agents attempted to assassinate a Russian defector with a nerve agent. I can testify that, as you suggest, within hours, the town was filled with the world's press and TV, and many parts of the city were in lockdown or out of bounds for months while they were decontaminated. At the same time, a massive police inquiry involving police and the security services began. If Father Michel's poisoning story had taken place, it would have made news around the world. Thank you, Sean. And for people who are not as familiar with this event, we'll have a
1: link in the show notes for a Russian bioweapon released in Salisbury, UK in
0: 1998. That's a famous event in the history of espionage. Uh, Stephen sends an email. He says, I have to say that I was taken aback after hearing clips of Father Rodrigue seemingly disrespecting the office of the bishop, as well as learning that he may have performed exorcism without the local bishop's permission it seems that he violated a promise that every priest makes to be respectful and obedient to his bishop and his bishop's successors. That was one of the biggest red flags for me. My question is, at what point would Father Rodriguez's actions, such as these, become subject to disciplinary actions by the church? Well, I think they already have. He
1: is now living as a retired priest in the Diocese of Amos, and he's been removed from his, or asked to resign or told to resign or otherwise removed from the different functions he was performing for the diocese. And it's possible that the bishop could take further action against him. So we'll have to see.
0: Joan sends an email and says, I want to thank you for your excellent podcast on Father Rodrigue. I was very disturbed by things he said and spoke well wrote too." One thing that upset me was the demand for a blessed picture of the Holy Family in homes. I immediately panicked, thinking, how would everyone know? Thank you for sharing your reasoning with us. I knew it disturbed me, but didn't know how to work it out. Thank you, Joan. I'm glad that uh, the episode helped you get some peace about that. Zverker writes on YouTube, Well, as a Catholic in a state of grace, I have nothing to worry about. Either October will pass without anything out of the ordinary happening, making Father Michelle Rodriguez fraud, although he will probably adjust his predictions, or the illumination will take place, which would be a great grace and mercy from God, a win either way. Indeed, although I should point
1: out that Father Rodrigue didn't say that the illumination of conscience specifically would happen in October. He said great things would happen in October that apparently are part of his overall scenario. So unless things in his scenario start happening and we're recording this in October, but if you're listening to it in November and we haven't modified it, guess what didn't happen in October? <laughs> Th- things in Father Rodriguez. I'm making
0: a prediction. We will not have to modify this episode. <laughs> yeah. All is Grace writes on YouTube, I appreciate this episode. I have enjoyed and gotten a lot out of much of the Countdown to the Kingdom videos, but something about Father Michel Rodriguez's videos did not set well with me and gave me an uneasy feeling. I like that you mentioned your amicable interaction with Daniel O'Connor. I really appreciate him.
1: Yeah, I really appreciated him too, and Christine Watkins. They both were very classy, even though it was obviously... Both of the episodes were ones where... To one degree or another, it was a sensitive issue because I was going to be critiquing these things. They were both very amicable and very helpful and just really both displayed a lot of class.
0: Chip writes on YouTube, I will say that I'm in my 30s and have numerous memories from when I was three and four years old that are reasonable and clear and that I think are reasonably reliable. So I can't share your skepticism about that particular detail. I think you missed one major implausibility in the story about the woman that he resurrected at mass, although that story was so full of ridiculous details that I can't blame you for overlooking one of them. There is absolutely no way that the doctors would have pronounced her dead on the scene. I know that on TV shows you always see people doing improper CPR for 30 seconds and then giving the person up for dead, but that's not how CPR really works. CPR rarely revives people. Its real purpose is to keep a person with no breathing or heartbeat alive until you can get them to a hospital. You pointed out that according to the story, they they did call the paramedics and that the hospital was about 12 minutes away. It would have been a serious stretch of credibility for even one doctor to have pronounced her dead under those circumstances. I cannot believe for a second that four doctors were on the scene and that they all gave her up for dead. I don't know that Father Rodriguez said
1: that they all gave her up for dead. He reported that at least one of them told him that it, it wasn't going to work, that she was dead. But I agree with you that it's very implausible that that would happen when a hospital is 12 minutes away, because you're right about what what field CPR does. I've been in that situation. I was once at a dance where someone had a cardiac arrest and the dance club sprang into action and we kept him alive. I mean, he was unconscious, but we kept him alive until he could, until the ambulance could arrive and get him to the hospital. And we saved his life. And, There's no way we we had nurses there and stuff. There's no way we were going to stop the CPR before an ambulance showed up. And if a hospital is just 12 minutes away and the doctors know the layout of the city and where the hospitals are, there's no way they would have given it up. However, I didn't want to make the episode even longer by making every possible criticism. So there were there were some I held back. But you're absolutely right. That is
0: an implausibility. As someone involved in scouting, I, I will tell you, one of the first things they teach you in first aid is you don't stop CPR ever, <laughs> not until yeah. you hand it off to the paramedics who continue until they get to the hospital. So, yeah, that is impossible. Uh, Christy Weber writes on YouTube. Thank you so much for sharing your research. I watched several of Father Michelle's videos, and they left me feeling very uncomfortable and anxious. So many things he said did not sit right with me, and it reminds me of the words of scripture. By their fruits, you will know them. Thank you for giving me and many others a sense of peace.
1: One of the difficulties with a lot of different reported apparitions or miraculous phenomena is that the supporters of them will always claim they have fruits. And that's one of the reasons that it's important for the bishops as objective I mean, this is the goal anyway, for the bishop to be an objective outsider who's not caught up in the event itself to take a look over time and see, well, are there really good fruits here? But it's a tricky test to apply because critics will say there are no fruits here. Supporters will say, well, there are lots of fruits here. Unless you catch the guy doing something like, you know, sleeping around or something. It can be a subjective matter. But in this case, you know, we looked at the different claims that Father Rodriguez made and just even though some of them are, you know, possible, it they're really improbable. And in aggregate, it just looks like it's very difficult to credit all the different things he's claimed. And so I'm very glad that it gave you a sense of peace.
0: Paul Leone writes on YouTube, I like the greater length and depth of the more recent episodes. Keep it going. Thank you. It's a balancing act. I
1: don't want to shortchange subjects by just doing a quick glide that doesn't get into the meat of it. On the other hand, I also want to keep the episodes at reasonable length. And so it's always kind of a balancing act. And, and we continue to discern what's the best way. But we appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Jas Samanti on YouTube writes: I w- tried watching video of Father Michel Rodriguez, but something seems off about him, and there's no humility in the way he delivers his talk. Just my observation.
1: Yeah, I understand the critique, and one I mentioned there were some criticisms that I could have made that I held back. One of them was of a particular clip, which we didn't air, where he talks about documents that he, or cooperation that he's had in producing documents for when they examine my case. And in context, it sounds like he's talking about his own cause for canonization. And it seemed quite immodest uh, to me for a mystic to be actively, not just, Doing things for a helpful to be helpful to a future investigation, but publicly talking about, oh, yeah, they're going to be examining my cause for canonization in the future. A true mystic with humility would not say such things. However, because of the way he phrased it, I couldn't prove it, so I didn't use it. But in context, he really sounded like he's publicly talking about my future cause for canonization.
0: Daniel Jesus Valencia Sanchez writes on YouTube Excellent as always. From my part, Since I don't have the time to do such a thorough investigation, I've tried to soak up on details from the prophecies. Since they're supposed to start happening in October, I've suspended judgment, as it will be very evident when they don't or do come to pass. Also, if he pulls a Harold camping, it will be even more obvious.
1: Yeah, and at the time we're recording this, as we said, it's still October. If you're hearing it without us modifying it to mention big apocalyptic events, then It didn't happen whether he pulls a Herald Camping and says, oh, it's going to happen next year. That's something we'll have to wait and see, although there may have already been some discussion of that by the time you hear this.
0: Mm. QOP Totus Tuis Maria on YouTube writes, I love, love, love Father Michel Rodrigue. If you study the life of the life of the saint, he fits the bill. He seems to me to be a saint in the making
1: well q o p totus to us Maria. I have a different opinion, but I welcome you, and always happy to have people with different opinions as long as we can discuss things cordially
0: uh, and I pray that he is a saint in the making yeah, I pray that we all are <laughs> Chateau mojo on YouTube writes sometimes when you are embarrassed or otherwise flustered, you involuntarily laugh. It's happened to me, and under serious and even dangerous circumstances. He's speaking a language he doesn't know well, and that itself can make you pretty anxious. Just saying. But the remarks about the woman's chest are just inappropriate, even if he wasn't a priest. The story about the fire is clearly pathological lying, and it's creepy. Thank you, Chateau Mojo. Jason Hall writes on Facebook, Excellent episode. I am continually amazed at the amount of charity you displayed toward the subjects of your podcast, even when the ultimate verdict isn't positive. It was great you were able to let a lot of his claims be told in his own voice. The story about the woman being raised from the dead during Mass was, even in his own telling, patently absurd. If you get taken to the hospital halfway through Mass, even if you have nothing wrong with you, you won't see anyone to tell you that and get the paperwork done in time to get back. And yeah, there would be a news story somewhere, or at least other people at the Mass who would have told the story. Thank you, Jason. And I agree. And one of the reasons I wanted to
1: use the audio clips of him speaking was so that you can hear him in his own voice. I think hearing someone and how they present themselves is important to weighing what the person is telling you. And so whenever possible, I want to present the person's exact words in their own voice.
0: Uh, Gerardo Escobedo Sainz on Facebook writes, I really love the way you brought the sense and experiences of UFO abductees as a preamble to the religious seers and experiences. It's kind of a mind prep for what's coming. And regarding the Father Rodrigue podcast, you took a very grounded approach. In fact, whenever I explain something to friends and family on questions about religion, I always have in mind Jimmy's word, it depends, before an answer. I, it gives the audience a sense of openness and deep listening.
1: Thank you, Gerardo. I'm glad that you appreciated what we were trying to do by making the comparison to UFO contactees and seeing what lessons could be learned from that field that we then might be able to apply in looking at apparitions. It was originally the Father Rodrigue and warning episodes were going to be one thing. But as I developed the outlines, I realized they needed to be two things. And the the material analyzing the UFO contactees ended up in the first part, even though it really was more relevant to the Father Rodriguez part. So. I was I knew that not everybody would see the connection immediately and think, why do we have this UFO material here? But it would ultimately pay off. And so I appreciate that you recognized what it was for once you got to see the whole picture. It wasn't extraneous. I think that we can learn different things by looking at parallel fields. In terms of me saying it depends, I guess I say that sometimes, but people often aren't aware of the details of their own idiolect their own personal (laughs) manner of speaking. I know that the Emperor Augustus was famous, and we have this like in Suetonius, uh, but the Emperor Augustus was famous for saying things like, quick as boiled asparagus. (laughs) that were kind of characteristic of him. And, you know, asparagus, since it's very long and thin, it has a high surface area ratio that makes it easy to boil quickly. But he seems not to have been aware that he was saying this phrase a lot. But uh, if I uh, do encounter more of my own idiolect, I'll let you know quick as boiled
0: asparagus. (laughs) He obviously knew how to cook asparagus, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, for your uh, feedback. That is uh, most appreciated. Jimmy, what uh, do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, Skinwalker Ranch is a mysterious
1: location, and a guy who worked at Skinwalker Ranch for a number of years has now posted his photos of Skinwalker Ranch in an Mm. online art gallery that you can take a look at. He doesn't have a lot of photos of aliens or portals or anything like that, but you can at least get a sense of what it looks like out there. Also, speaking of uh, mysterious places, a place that we're going to talk about in a future episode is down in Peru. It's the Nazca Lines, which are these giant geoglyphs that have been talked about as, you know, unusual phenomena for decades. And recently they found a new one of a cat on a hillside. And so they've helped reconstruct it. It was on the verge of disappearing, but they've helped reconstruct it. And so you can see the new Nazca cat line figure and uh, get some more information about the Nazca lines at another link we'll have.
0: All right. Well, that's it from us. What do you think about the Charles Hickson, Calvin Parker, Pascagoula UFO abduction encounter. You can let us know your theories and your uh, conclusions by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also be sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next week is Thanksgiving,
1: so we'll be having a weird questions episode for Thanksgiving. And then the week after that, we're going to be talking about lie detectors. Uh, how do they work? How reliable are they?
0: And how can they be beat? Ooh, that could come in handy. I don't anticipate using that, but <laughs> Come in handy. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion today and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.